Hello, welcome to the Anti-Racist Film Club podcast, a production of The Commons, the online faith space created by the South Sound United Methodist Co-op. But for the purposes of this podcast, we're also a bunch of people excited to watch movies and grow together through the lens of anti-racism. I'm your host for today, Alexa Eisenbarth, and today I'm joined by the awe-inspiring legend, Lauren Fontanilla, who commands legions of tech volunteers at the First United Methodist Church of Olympia, who is my favorite employee and definitely did not write this intro herself. How are you today, Lauren? I'm fantastic. So this is what it's like on the other end of the intro. (laughs) (laughs) It is. How do you feel after those, you know, just uh, extravagant compliments of yourself? Well, I I didn't know you felt that way. (laughs) (laughs) To be clear, you are the only employee that I supervise, but you are my favorite. So um, I think it's I think it's fair. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, Lauren, today we are talking about Lilo and Stitch. Yes. What did you think after watching the film? What are your initial reactions? So I really, really like this movie. It was one of my favorite movies growing up. I definitely watched it as nauseum with my family and my mom. When we told her that we were doing this one, she's like, oh, yeah, you go watch that a lot as a kid. <laughs> um, so I was very, very familiar with it and the entire franchise. So we can maybe talk a little bit more about that. I have a, a deep wealth of knowledge about Lilo and Stitch, <laughs> but I hadn't actually seen the original movie in quite a while, maybe like 10 years, maybe a little bit less. Mm -hmm. And my very first reaction as it was getting into it was that I didn't remember quite how sad it was. Hmm. I I knew the plot points, but I didn't realize how hard that they were going to hit me. I wasn't surprised by anything, but I definitely spent like 15 minutes in my office crying, watching a Disney movie and getting paid for it. It was wonderful. That's amazing. Yeah, I had similar reactions. I had also not seen it in a long time. And this would definitely have been my first viewing of it as an adult. And so I noticed a lot of different things watching it as an adult than I maybe would have as a kid, definitely would have as a kid. So Mm -hmm. like, and I had forgotten just like some general plot lines that that were there and kind of central to the to the origin of Stitch and and the the framing of the of the narratives. Like I had forgotten that you know Earth was a protected planet because they were <laughs> you know they had con- whatever they had believed that mosquitoes were worth saving you know and they were an endangered species and you know so there was just parts of it that I appreciated as an adult that I just was not I did not catch on to as a kid or was not the most important part of the story right that I had held on to these years mm-hmm. and I I also Also, just I probably felt this way then, but I had such a fondness for Lilo watching it this time that I I don't think that I appreciated before. I think she's just such a well-written character, like such a personality. Oh, absolutely. So if you hadn't seen this movie in a while, how familiar are you with all of the Lilo and Stitch properties? I am not. So you should tell us all about it because I I am less familiar (laughs) with that. (laughs) Uh, It's not it's not all super relevant to our conversation today. But in addition to this movie, which came out in 2002, there's also Lilo and Stitch 2. Stitch has a glitch. And then there's a, a television movie called Stitch with an exclamation point, which was sort of the the big pilot to a two season TV show that I think was um, syndicated. So it has over 60 episodes that uh, it's called Lilo and Stitch, the animated series. Mm. And then that culminates in the final film in the franchise, which is Leroy and Stitch Mm. and Leroy and Stitch 
is so goofy and so silly. It's probably my favorite one in the franchise, but it's not the best one. Mm. And it makes absolutely zero sense unless you followed the entire story. Interesting. Like I could tell you the plot of Leroy and Stitch, and I'm not sure you would understand any of it (laughs) (laughs) from just watching the first movie. And I can't think of another franchise that pivots so hard into (laughs) something else and adds so much lore that is just not in the first property. And there's also an anime, but I never watched that. Okay, okay. Why do you think, Lauren, that there is such a franchise around this? Like, why do you think it was so successful? I'm not sure it's exactly successful. It is merchandisable Mm -hmm. in a way that a lot of movies from the Disney modern age or um, the experimental era, basically the point between the 90s and the release of Tangled in um, 2010, uh, that period of movies, Disney made a lot of them and they were not extremely commercially successful. It's Hmm. sandwiched in between two periods of immense success for the company. And I think this is a film that was marketed very well. Mm. And when you go to Disneyland or a Disney store in your local mall, you can find a lot of Stitch merch. You can also find a lot of Angel merch, which is the the pink Stitch character who's from the TV show. Mm. So if you ever see like a pink Stitch, it's part of the franchise. Mm -hmm. So I think it found a lot of resonance with kids wanting to buy things. And so then that brought its relevance into the cultural zeitgeist in a way that something like Home on the Range did not. Yeah. (laughs) Or Treasure Planet or Atlantis. Uh, Or even something like Bolt, Mm -hmm. where I think these are all really good movies, but they didn't sell very well. Gotcha. Regardless of the quality of this movie, which I think is very, very good, and it Mm -hmm. deserves the acclaim that it has in the niche communities, I think it was just a little bit more profitable, and that's why it has lasted. Interesting. Yeah. I also, there was such great character development that I recognize now and remembering back to being like a a kid. I remember being like in middle school and my friend could do the stitch voice. And so that was like sort of a level of like, (laughs) I don't know, that was, that was a cool thing, right? That that was, that she was able to do that. And so I don't know that there was something like attainable and identifiable with them, like with both Lilo and stitch that was really connecting, right? Even the stitch voice, right? It's like, it was, it's different in alien, right? But it was also attainable sort mm-hmm. of, right? For people. I think there is, there's like a fondness and a, and a relatability there, right? Like Lilo is not a Disney princess, right? Like she's no. not <laughs> far off from a human, like she's so human and real mm-hmm. that you can connect with her. You feel fondness for her. You can connect with her on a variety of different facets of her like personality and character that I just, I don't know. There was something about the character development in this movie that I, I don't always feel in Disney movies that that was just really, really good. She's definitely the moral compass Mm -hmm. of both this film and also the entire franchise, but she's an unusual paragon, uh, like the paragon archetype of like sort of like the perfect, like always makes the right decision hmm. is almost like holier than thou. Like sure. like that type of character who knows what the right thing is and want, and believes in other people and that they will make the right choices too. Hmm. But she's unusual in the sense that she is not well liked. Mm-hmm. She is not... Uh, her interests don't align with the mainstream. Mm-hmm. She's seen and said multiple times in the film to be very weird mm-hmm. and approaches and sees the world through a lens that is unexpected and not appreciated 
by her peers or the other people in her life. Absolutely. Well, I think that's a great segue. Let's talk about a little bit of the description of the film. I'll offer a description of the film and then let's get into some of the conversation around anti-racism, what you saw there. Excellent. Lilo and Stitch 2002 is a Disney animated film written and directed by Chris Sanders and Dean DeBlois. The iconic soundtrack includes an original score from Alan Silvestri and Mark Kihili Ho'omalu with a smattering of classic Elvis tunes liberally sprinkled in. The story follows Lilo Pelikai, a little girl from Kauai, Hawaii. After the death of her parents, Lilo is being raised by her older sister, Nani, who struggles to adjust to her new childcare role while also working full-time and dealing with her own grief. Nani is hounded throughout the film by Mr. Cobra Bubbles, a social worker intent on splitting up their family. Meanwhile, Stitch, a genetic experiment created to destroy planets, escapes the Galactic Senate and crash lands on Earth. Disguised as a dog, he is accidentally adopted by Lilo, and together they bond over being outcasts and what it means to heal from a fractured family. Set adjacent to the tourist industry in Hawaii, Lilo and Stitch is a refugee story bumped up against a post-colonial one. Where the audience reckons with themes of assimilation, cultural genocide, and found family through the eyes of a cuddly alien and a six-year-old girl. So Lauren, what did you see in this film that might illuminate our conversation around anti-racism? Yeah, I think that the work of anti-racism is a constant undercurrent throughout the narrative. It's definitely there in a lot of the characters' interactions and especially the conflicts that arise between quite a few different characters, but especially um, Nani getting and keeping custody of Lilo and her struggles with that. But it's never quite the point of any scene. Mm. It's this insidious underbelly of the film that all the characters have to deal with, but is never actually explicitly addressed. Interesting. In in the theatrical cut. <laughs> I don't want to just like immediately dump into like deleted scenes and extra <laughs> bonus content. But I think there's a really interesting deleted scene from the film that does address this kind of thing openly. Say more about that. Yeah. So it's an alternate version of a scene that ended up in the theatrical cut called um, Model Citizen, mm -hmm. which is the one where um, Lilo basically teaches Stitch how to blend in and be a productive member of society. Mm -hmm. And because Cobra Bubbles uh, tells Lilo that the next time he sees her dog, he wants him to be a model citizen. Mm -hmm. uh, and so in the movie, then they go around town, they follow Nani, who's looking for work, and uh, it all culminates in him performing dressed as Elvis on the beach, uh, and then he gets his photo taken of him, and he gets squirted with water, and it freaks him out, and so he causes uh, like a stampede away from the, the beach, and then Nani loses that job opportunity as a lifeguard, uh, and then Cobra Bubble sees him, basically causing this scare, and basically decides that, yeah, he's going to take Lilo. Uh, and that's how it goes in the actual movie. Mm -hmm. In the deleted scene, what follows during the sequence is Lilo walking down the street with Stitch and they're hanging out. And then a couple cars come by with tourists and they yell some like very PG Disney racist things. Hmm. Things like which way to the beach in a very slowed down like which way to the beach do you speak English? Hmm. And then they also say things like oh look a real native. Wow so like culture like wow we're so immersed in the culture here mm. uh so then they get to the beach and um lilo fakes a tsunami uh, because she knows that a tsunami warning is coming with like a normal 
regular siren test and she knows how to time in. So she freaks out all the tourists. And then you can see that the animation they used and that like mass exodus away from the beach is the same animation that they reused for the Elvis sequence. Um, so either way, both sequences end with Cobra Bubbles seeing Lilo and Stitch cause mayhem on the beach. Mm. And then Lilo has this pretty crushing line because he's, he's standing there and he's like, why why did you do this? And she's like, if you lived here, you would understand. Hmm. And I think that hmm. I like what ended up in the movie, but I think that lays it out so much clearer for the audience, the kind of like cultural oppression mm -hmm. that she is growing up with at six years old and getting screamed at pretty offensive things by people who are viewing her as like a tourist attraction yeah. And it's it's awful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so why do you think they didn't include that? Why do you think they shifted to the Elvis Elvis scenario? Um, I'm not exactly sure. I don't know if it's studio notes or anything. It was recorded uh, by Devin A. Chase, who's the voice actress for Lilo. So it went fairly along, uh, far along in their storyboarding process. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if it's studio notes or if they just decided to take it in another direction. I know that there's a lot of deleted and workshopped content for the film. There's quite a few well-known deleted scenes from this movie. And I think this one is maybe not the direction they wanted to go just because it might, it, it might be a little too on the nose, but then also it de-emphasizes Nani's struggles as well. Mm. I think she's the other character who really, the themes of anti-racism and butting up against the expectations of what it means to exist in her role as both a caregiver and also a provider for her family. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. If you had to guess the motives, right? Like, is there any sense that you wonder about that they didn't include that version of the, the scene because of you know, worries about backlash or, you know, that people would be upset about overt, you know, anti-racism themes in the, in the movie, or do you think it was more about the, you know, the narrative or, you know, something else? I think, I think it's more about the pacing and the narrative and bringing out the storylines that were most emblematic of the core messages of the film. But that's a very like, perhaps a rose tinted glass of perspective on it. <laughs> But before you ask the question, it hadn't really crossed my mind that this was something that was actively avoiding audience backlash. Sure, sure. I know there the the ending of the film is changed for audience uh, backlash purposes because of its uh, unfortunate timing after nine eleven. A lot of the back half of the um, uh, climactic space chase was reskinned because uh, in the original film, instead of piloting an alien spaceship through the mountains, they actually hijacked a plane and mm. drove it through downtown Honolulu, which yeah. just was not the right image and didn't have the same connotations as it did during the storyboarding process. Absolutely. Yeah. And to me, right, that seems more of a sensitivity rather oh, than, yes, yeah. right, than something about like a, a worry about backlash. But yeah, I think that I think that's helpful to, to kind of keep putting in context of the time that it was in. Yeah, like this came out in 2002. And so yeah, it definitely, definitely a different, a different context than where we are 
you know, sitting now for sure. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I, uh, I didn't remember about the movie, but felt so, you know, sort of pointed and relevant for, for this conversation was the very beginning. And, you know, the, the setting is still in space at the galactic council or whatever it is. And there's this conversation about what makes a monster, mm-hmm. right? Like, is it a monster? Is it not a monster? And you're looking at these aliens, right? Which are so strange in comparison to humanity, right? So strange. And for us, we would probably say that they all were monsters, but for them, they're making this distinction between themselves, like the people who are on the council and sort of like, I don't know, civilized aliens, right? And then monsters, right? That those are two sort of different things. Mm-hmm. And and then their, their view of earth and humans and that these humans are delicate and not intelligent and, you know, just their characterization of earth and humanity and what makes a monster. And it felt like a relevant conversation as far as racism. Like I think that that is sort of at the core of of racism is making someone a monster. Yeah. Right. Like to other and to, to, to view someone so differently and other from yourself that you make them a monster in your mind. And so there's something to be controlled, to be dealt with, to be, you know, captured and kept in a cage, right? Like something that can be held back from unleashing its destruction on the world and on you. And it just, it felt like such a interesting framing that I likely didn't catch as a kid Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and really appreciated that framing of, of what makes a monster. Yeah. And I think if you look at the history of the way that alien cinema exists, there's a lot of coded immigrant and refugee stories there. And then you can also flip it in alien invasion stories or more told from the other perspective. Sure. But what makes a character alien is such an interesting topic because we can't actually create something that is completely devoid of humanity in the way that like we want Stitch to function. So what makes him seem alien or monstrous in the film are still sometimes deeply human traits, like feeling lost or that you don't understand the language of what's going on and the process of learning and being judged, like having a diagram of your badness level shown to you. Yes, yes. Oh, that was such a, such a good, such a good scene. Like this is how much bad you have, but you have this much good and we're going to make you good. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think what was really powerful about that was not even how much bad that there was, but that Lilo saw that there was an amount of good in him. Mm -hmm. After he's been terrible to her, like he is a terrible, terrible, well, at first pet and then friend. Yes. Yes. Like causing just devastation and destruction in their lives, like not only physically, but relationally and otherwise, right? That he's really destroying things. And if that scene were taken out of context, it'd be like, oh my gosh, like Lilo's being mean, showing him how much bad there is in him. But it was in the context Right. It was such a beautiful thing that she was saying, but you have some good in you. And she didn't say you're all bad. And there were other moments where Lilo really saw something beautiful in Stitch and and saw potential and possibility and a future of of a loving relationship. And, you know, like she's saying, she's like, I hear you cry at night. Mm-hmm. Like I'm sure it's because you miss your family. Right. And and having so much empathy for him 
and the other scene I remember too, right? Nani says at one point, like, tell me where Lilo is or whatever. I know you can talk, right? Like, right. And it, I know you can speak English sort of thing. And it was this acknowledgement of like, you are smarter, you are more capable than what you have led on, right? And I know that and see that in you. And so in those moments of seeing Stitch as, you know, his becoming part of the family, right? Or like his being accepted and acknowledged in his goodness and skill and competence, uh, yeah, like made him less of a monster, right? Like Mm -hmm. not only was he objectively maybe not a monster and not like his whole purpose was to destroy things. Like maybe that was never true, but also he stopped behaving so badly when people saw what was good in him, Yeah, which I felt was really powerful. Exactly. And then I think that's where the allegory to the ugly duckling story, why it resonates so heavily with him and motivates an internal change because mm-hmm. the way he sees himself and the hope there at the end. So he he reads the ugly duckling story and it has this ending where the ugly duckling figures out that it's a swan and that even though it's been told that it is monstrous and has no place that it can find one eventually. But then the movie turns that on its head because Stitch doesn't find people like him physically. He doesn't find other swans, but he learns that what is important is what the internal connections and the families that you make out of differences and a mutual um, care and attention to each other, that that can be more powerful than a physical likeness. Absolutely. Yeah. I thought it was really interesting. I, I had forgotten about the that plot line of the ugly duckling in this film and I really appreciated like how deeply Stitch identified with the ugly duckling, like so much so that that he took the book out into the woods and kind of recreated the scene of like learning how to say I'm lost right out here and and like firmly expected and hoped, I guess hoped that his family would find him. And he had left the family that he was like building, right? Like this family that he was trying to have, or maybe he didn't recognize them as family quite yet, right? There had been this rupture. So there's a really cool, interesting visual detail in that the hammock scene from Stitch's perspective is a parallel to the ugly duckling looking at the, the real duck family. So he's looking at Lilo and Nani embracing in the hammock and seeing himself as outside and other and that he doesn't belong. And so that visual language is part of the motivation for why he leaves. Uh, But then he goes out into the woods and instead of finding uh, embrace with a like kind, it's Jumba who comes out of the woods and tells him that he will never belong. He never had a purpose other than destruction. And that even if he goes with them, he will be dismantled for further study. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, it kind of sends him back to the family he wants. And yeah, that's really interesting. Hmm. Well, what else, Lauren, was meaningful to you in this watch of the movie and through the lens of anti-racism? I I do want to talk about the music in the film and the way that it's used. Um, And maybe a good starting point is that hammock scene Hmm. and the use of the song Aloha Oi, which uh, I don't know how much of the, the cultural history you know about that song. I don't. Oh, okay. So the song is written by the last queen of Hawaii, Queen Lilio Kailani. And it was originally, it has two origin stories, basically. One of which is that it was a love song composed before she was queen because she was a a very talented and prolific songwriter. Mm. Uh, It was a love song, basically. Aloha oi, farewell to thee is how she translated it. 
it was about two people in love who had to part for some reason. Um, she observed a couple saying goodbye. And so then she had this idea. And then when she was imprisoned as the white colonial powers took over her country, forced her to abdicate the throne and then held her in captivity for the rest of her life, she transcribed it. Uh, onto paper and then it was distributed many places so it made its way out into the world and became very popularized there Mm -hmm. and some versions say that she wrote it in captivity other versions say it was this previous tune that she had that she was only transcribing because a lot of her outside communications had been limited at the time although she did write her memoir during this same period as well the way that the song has been used after the second transcription has been as a symbol for her saying goodbye to the independent sovereign nation of Hawaii. And that it's about her culture being stripped away and oppressed and uh, colonized. So like goodbye, farewell to thee. But it ends with the repeated lines of until we meet again. And so it has this resistance hope to it i was reading this um uh, essay last night talking about the historical revolutionary resistance movement of the piece and i will try to link that in the show notes below but it's just it's really interesting that then that's used in this film as both the cultural touchstone so it's probably the most famous song written in hawaiian okay I mean, I can't think of another one off of the top of my head. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it has this deep, very surface awareness of like, oh, yes, it's a song being sung in Hawaiian in this film. So it's relating to the setting. But then it has this much deeper personal message because it's Nani singing to Lilo on the night that she has agreed to give her to social services. Yeah, absolutely. She's saying farewell until we meet again, not because this is something that she wants or that she wants to say goodbye, but because it's being forced on her by powers above her control. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. That's really helpful, helpful background. I, you know, it made me think too, right? It's the same dynamic of Nani's job search, right? And she mm-hmm. is, she starts in this job where her culture is really like fetishized, right? Like these, yes. like, and she calls it like a, a phony luau or something yeah, like that, right? Luau. Fakey luau, right? And it's like, I, I don't know about you if you've been to Hawaii, but like, I've been to one of those, <laughs> you know, like, uh, we're familiar with that. And it's like this, there's this air or facade of like appreciating this beautiful culture. And yet at the same time, it's being hamstrung and put on display for, and like profited off of like for white colonial powers. Right. And, and this, this goes on today, right? Like this continues and furthers and we're seeing the impacts of it ongoing of just this extraction of resources from native people that doesn't, gains right the the financial gain that happens from the extraction never returns to the people or the land Mm -hmm. it is taken out and basically sent to the mainland right like in symbolism and realistically right it's white settlers who are earning from from the extraction of these people and not just in the land which that is happening too but but also in the people and the human resources and the culture like that is being extracted and profited off of in a way that I think really harms the relationship between the native people and their culture, mm-hmm. right? Like it causes this huge rift and and scar there that I don't think that white settlers know or care about, you know, like in reality, like I don't think they realize the harm that it's causing. And if they did, I don't know that they would stop because they're profiting off of it. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that follow that narrative follows Nani throughout her entire job search. She applies for multiple jobs throughout the film, one of which is to a hotel mm. as to be a concierge. And then she gets turned away from that. One of which is to be a lifeguard, which we know is a, a particularly touristy beach because of the, um, the connotations with that. And then also she's turned away from the job at the coffee stand, not because the owner doesn't want to hire her, but because they can't afford to. It's the end of tourist season. Yeah. And so the money isn't there and the infrastructure of the land itself is dependent on the outsiders who come to exploit it. Yeah. And and the social worker, right, Mr. Bubbles, doesn't have any sense of that context, right? And so, like, you know, thinking about for anyone who has kids and if uh, someone comes and, like, is observing you in the worst season, on the worst day, right, like, in the day you lose your job, right, like, that there is so much tension and upheaval there. And if it was your friend, right, you would have compassion and empathy and understand that that happens to people, right? And and so there's not like a, a sense of understanding of like, maybe in this community, people have seasonal jobs because of tourism, right? And there's going to be a season when there's unemployment or underemployment or, you know, but that there's not a doubtfulness that Nani cares about Lilo and will meet her needs as best she can, right? And like, make sure that she and that the community, right? Like, there's not just Nani with Lilo. Nani has David and other people in the community who love and care for Lilo and for her mm -hmm. who will come around them. And so there's just not that when you have a, you know, a white settler, white colonial view of this family, you see failure and lack and uh, like an inability to care and an irresponsibility, right? Because it isn't the same sort of family structure or situation as might be somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I really think that the other song that features, well, there's two, there's two more songs in the film that uh, feature the Hawaiian language. Mm -hmm. um, but the opening uh, introduction to Lilo after all of the galactic stitch escape stuff uh, is a song called Hey Mele No Lilo, which the Lilo in that song is Queen Lilio Kailani. Mm -hmm. um, and it's more of an ode to the landscape of Hawaii and the beauty of the land itself. Yeah. Uh, but it's all expressed through this credit sequence where Lilo is swimming, giving the peanut butter sandwiches to Pudge, and it ends with her uh, in the hula performance and her hula class. And I think that scene really highlights the way that the culture, like the way that it is actually being appreciated and reclaimed through an oral tradition that has historically been stolen and oppressed by the same people who might want to go to a fake luau. Sure, sure. Yeah, I one of the things that stood out the most to me in that scene was the dance instructor coming up to Lilo and in the tenderest voice, he was like, Lilo, why are you all wet? And it was this like tenderness that I don't often see portrayed especially in men in film or otherwise, right? Like it was this, it was such a tenderness and a question of curiosity rather than a like, what the heck are you doing all wet, right? Like being wet in Hawaii is like <laughs> normal, right? Like, cause there's the ocean, like it's completely reasonable. Like there are so many situations in which it's reasonable for her to have just come from the water, but it was like, okay, but you're in a dance studio now, right? There was reasons she shouldn't have been soaking wet, mm -hmm. but there wasn't this just like initial first response of anger or frustration. It was like such a tender question of curiosity and a sign of just like how much love and 
understanding of her there was that like maybe this wasn't the first time this has, had happened or things similar right, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, she regularly is, feeds pudge yes and that she like regularly does things that are sort of like out of the norm mm-hmm. and an understanding of the that her her parents had recently died right i mean do you know the reason why she feeds pudge uh, for the weather, something about the weather. Yes. Oh, because her family, her parents died when it rained yes. when they were driving in the rain. And so she gives these offerings to Pudge in order to appease something outside of her own control because she thinks she can prevent more of her family from being fractured. So that's why it's Ugh. so important to her and that why she was willing to be late um, and partake in less time with this activity that she so deeply loves yeah absolutely and then you know the the girl who's in her class with her is calls her crazy because she thinks that pudge controls the weather right Mm -hmm. and and this um yeah i hadn't connected those two things there's a there's another really good deleted scene basically stitch accidentally kills pudge oh my gosh uh and then lilo takes the body and buries it in her parents grave it's the most heart-crushing deleted scene in existence for sure yeah lilo's just really hard-hitting i mean she just is like i think the thing that lilo does is she reveals what's true for all of us that we are too afraid to express and i think that makes such a that always makes a good character when characters do that for us but that like deep sense of grief and the stories that we tell ourselves around grief and loss they are reasonable in grief right but it's it seems so unreasonable when you're outside of grief but it's like it makes so much sense once you understand like how our minds work right and once you experience grief you're like yeah that makes complete sense that this you know this little girl thinks that if she feeds this fish she she can save her family right and there's such tenderness there when you see behavior in its context and you can understand its origins and 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 you can gain some empathy for it, mm-hmm. which I think is one of the calls of the show for for anti-racism. Like that's an anti-racism skill is to see behavior that we characterize as strange or alien, right? And try to understand it in its own context and not in our context, not in my context where I'm judging you from over here, but figuring out what your what happened to you before and during this behavior to to create this and come come to find some empathy and understanding for it. Yeah, exactly. I guess going back a little bit, uh, there was something else I wanted to discuss with the model citizen sequence as it exists in the film, because I think that choice of words mm-hmm. of model citizen, like the next time I see your dog, I want him to be a model citizen. This last viewing it reminded me of the phrase model minority mm-hmm. uh, as the very harmful stereotypical myth and the way that that is, it relates to the film and the themes of assimilating into the mainstream society, which is what that sequence in the movie is. It's teaching Stitch how to pass as a cooperative member of a society that is oppressive. Yeah. Right. Right. And how interesting that they chose Elvis to be the model. Oh, right. Like, I mean, that's like a funny, but I think it's also really interesting. Like Elvis in so many ways was disruptive of the cultural norms of his day, but because of his success is 
you know, seen as something acceptable. Right. And Mm -hmm. yeah. Anyway, just that I think, I think one of the things that that choice does is bring to light for especially adults and older viewers, right? Like who were more familiar with Elvis, right? Like when I was a kid, Elvis had, was not alive. And so like, I wasn't like familiar with like the cultural zeitgeist of Elvis, but like once you kind of understand that placing, right, that whatever it is, that's a model citizen changes over time. And even a model minority, right? A model, whatever it is that we're assimilating to changes over time very dramatically. Mm -hmm. And so it's always a moving target, I guess. Well, and in addition to being very seen as very disruptive, Elvis was also, as we look at him retrospectively, he was a massive cultural appropriator. Mm. A lot of his music was directly stolen from black artists and his style and his persona, even more so than like physical songs, which, yes, a lot of his physical songs had origins outside of whiteness, but the way that he portrayed himself was black culture dressed up on a white person so that it was at least a little bit cultural accept, uh, culturally accepted. Yeah. So then I think that's a, that's a really interesting character for Lilo to idolize. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think that that happens, right? Like I think once white people decide that something is worth taking, right? Like then it becomes valuable Mm -hmm. and it becomes something that's acceptable. But before then it is something that can be othered, right? And made, made into something that's not for model citizens, right? It's something uncivilized or whatever it is, right? Like just making it, making it other. But once, once the white gaze, you know, upon it is granted, made acceptable, then, then it becomes, becomes that way. Yeah. I am so glad you said the phrase white gaze because it reminded (laughs) me I wanted to talk about this, Yes, which is that this is a film made by white people. It's very well researched. And I think that the way they approached the filmmaking process was respectful and well done. I I, I think they did a very good job portraying a culture that was not theirs Mm -hmm. by listening to voices and taking feedback and trying to authentically replicate something that they truly appreciated. I I don't think this film is appropriating culture in a harmful way. Mm -hmm. I, again, I don't speak for people whose culture is being portrayed in this film, Sure, but I think that compared to the way that Hawaii in particular has been portrayed on film historically, this is an example of something that is incredibly and impeccably researched, but it inevitably has a white gaze because both Chris Sanders and Dean Dubois, Dubois, (laughs) it's French, I don't know how to pronounce it, because they are white and a lot of the animators were white and um, uh, Thomas Schumacher, who was a producer one of like the late of uh, Disney uh, animation at the time was, was white. And so the film has this outside perspective and a lot of their audience is also probably going to not be native Hawaiian watching the film. I just think that's, that's very interesting. That's something that we need to be aware of as we're having anti-racist discussions about it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I did notice at the whenever they started doing the credits that the music right the original score is by a guy named Alan Silvestri yeah right? which is not a hawaiian name maybe no, he has he's great 
I love right. Alan Silvestri, but no, he's not Hawaiian. Like, and the music is good, you know, like it's, you know, I enjoyed the music and I was just like, oh, okay, that's interesting. Like, I just yeah. didn't know that, notice that before. Um, you made a note, Lauren, that, that Lilo's, Lilo might work against this white gaze. Yes. Um, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. I did not come up with this idea. I'm sure I saw it as like someone took a screenshot of a Tumblr post in like 2016 and shared this around <laughs> the internet. I sure. I didn't think of this myself, but I saw once on the internet someone's take on the the gaze of the film and the way that Lilo's camera functions against the tourists because she has this fascination with observing tourists the way that she's grown up with them observing her so we as the audience are more well I guess I don't speak for the whole audience but I as an audience member am observing this like the tourists my father's from Hawaii but I'm not from Hawaii mm -hmm. and so I have eyes of like the guy with the ice cream or um, the people on the beach. Mm -hmm. And when she takes a picture of me, I have to reflect on the way that I have been viewing her. And she has this wall of photos of people who are looking at her. And I think that's such an interesting way to address that. And I went looking for it last night, but I saw a definition. One, I couldn't find it, but I found a definition one time, a reframing of the phrase uh, female gaze as opposed to male gaze in filmmaking. Because some people have the false understanding that the female gaze is just if you put a camera on the hands of a female director, what happens? Sure. But a female director can absolutely direct with the male gaze in mind. And like the fetishization or over-sexualization of male bodies is still oftentimes a male gaze. And so the female gaze is something else. And the one definition that I could not find, so I can't actually cite my source here, but it was talking about how a female gaze can be the knowledge that you are being observed. Mm. And like the awareness of the male gaze yeah. and how you respond and react to that is one aspect of the female gaze. And I think that is exemplified in the way that Lilo handles being observed and the way that her culture is being observed throughout the film. Yeah. And offers her own resistance to it. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, again, Lilo is the one who reveals what's true. Right. And so when she takes pictures of these tourists, she's like she's revealing to them, like you mentioned, right, that they are, you know, kind of fetishizing her. And she's going to kind of do that back in a way that is not necessarily harmful. Well, and she's also she's not spiteful about it. She's right. not doing this to get back at them or because she's angry. She finds them genuinely beautiful. And this is the way that she expresses her art, too. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think is just a really, really cool detail in the film. That's really helpful. I when you were talking about the, you know, the male gaze and the female gaze, one of the things that uh, I experience that is experienced by women clergy in particular, right, is that there's this understanding that or belief, right, that men are universal. They have the universal perspective. And so male preachers can speak to everyone, but that there's this illusion that female preachers can only connect with a female audience. 
and that it's really hard for men to hear a word of God from a female preacher, but that women have been expected throughout all time in history, right, to receive words of God from men. And so, uh, you know, they can hear a, a male preacher and connect with it, or have at least done the work to get from their experience to the to the male's experience and figure out how to apply it to their life. Like that, that labor has been expected of them for so long mm-hmm. that they do it naturally. And I think we do that in film too, right? Like people, we've, We've only seen, you know, movies made by men for most of human history, right? And so women have done the work of making those films and those stories meaningful to them and finding meaning in them. And then to to expect that once we put a camera in a in a woman's hand, that it will be a from from that perspective, yeah, is is denying the history of of filmmaking and storytelling right that we women are shaped by you know male filmmakers and and storytelling by men just as much as anyone else you know and so it's interesting it i think it's a it will continue to be interesting to see how women tell women's stories and figure out how kind of rediscover what it is like to tell stories like a woman, right? Whatever that mm-hmm. means, right? But like we kind of reclaim and question and poke holes at that framework. Yeah. And in addition to women telling women's stories, having the freedom to t- not tell exclusively women's stories. Like there's yeah. a way that you can be a female filmmaker and express anything. And it will be different than in the hands of another auteur but it will be something that is yours and that you will have the recognition for your vision rather than being the token female director in a room of men. Absolutely. Yeah. It makes me think of too, right? The the cultural zeitgeist of Barbie this last summer, right? right? And, right. and the, the conclusion of so many of like filmmakers was like, oh, people want movies about toys, like vintage toys. <laughs> and I was like, no, no, you missed the entire point of what Barbie was about, right? Like it was like Barbie was the foil, right? Barbie was the tool, but it was a really a story about like what it means to be human, what it means to be women, what it means to be men and how feminism hurts men and like a questioning of cultural reality. And I mean, it was just such a great story and we want more women filmmakers, right? It was such a different way of making a movie and such a, it was that it was so fascinating and interesting and engaging for, for people. And so, yeah, just like missing the main point, right? <laughs> because it's, because it's a new. <laughs> right. I mean, we're recording this a couple weeks before the Oscars, which mm. is now the second year in a row. Well, so not only was Greta Gerwig snubbed for directing Barbie with any nomination, this is the second year in a row that no female directors were nominated for that category. Wow. And I think three years ago, a woman won. Mm. I believe that was Chloe Zhao for Nomadland. I might have my years mixed up. Sure. But um, yeah, I know this is the second year that a female director was not nominated. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Well, thank you for all of this uh, context and conversation, Lauren. Um, We're coming to the end of our time. Do you have any final thoughts uh, before we head out? Yeah, sure. I think that Lilo and Stitch is my like cornerstone example of a movie that is for everyone because it's not 
a kid's movie exclusively. You can watch this at any age and take something very deep and personal away from it. When you're a kid, you might focus a lot more on the alien space chases and the cool like blasters and like how cute and fluffy stitches and maybe want to buy a plush of him. But I think as you experience more of the world, you can view more depth of the characters and how nuanced and like finesse that they're written. Uh, I know as a teenager, that's when I sort of woke up and realized more of the um, CPS plots and what Mm -hmm. Cobra Bubbles was and his function in the story as an antagonist and and the, the complications of having a kid's movie where the central antagonist is social services. Mm -hmm. But then this last time seeing even deeper and, and the more anti-racist undercurrent and resistance in all of the characters against a society that is built on post-colonialism and exploiting their language and their customs. I I don't know what I'm going to see again in 10 years. I plan to keep watching this movie for a long time and taking deeper cuts and lessons away from it because I think it has a deep inherent value. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Lauren. And thank you for listening to the Anti-Racist Film Club podcast. If you haven't seen Lilo and Stitch, it is currently available to stream on Disney Plus or to rent from Amazon Prime for less than $5. To learn more about the Anti-Racist Film Club itself, visit fumcoli.org or follow the links in our description below. This is a monthly podcast, so be sure to follow us on whatever platform you're currently listening to, such as Spotify, Amazon, or Apple Music, so you don't miss our next upload. And remember that the number one way that you can support this podcast is by sharing it with your friends. I can think of six to six adorable reasons you should. (laughs) But before we sign off, I want to thank you, Lauren, my favorite employee, for leading our conversation today. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me on my own podcast. It's been a pleasure. Yes, it's very strange to to switch roles, but it has been quite a joy. And for everyone who tuned in, thanks for listening. 